How many of you grew up with the Westminster Confession or catechisms? Probably not very many. How, Ligon, thank you. <laughs> Ligon Duncan, my boss. Although he is almost everyone's boss somewhere down the, down the line. So the Westminster Assembly is our topic for this afternoon. And whether you have grown up with the standards, as most of you have not, or at least are familiar with the confession, the catechisms, and the assembly, or are wanting to learn about some of these things and this moment in time for the first time, I'm glad that you're here, and I hope that something in these minutes together will be helpful for us. By nature of the title, you can guess that largely what I want to do is talk about some history. What is the history of the Westminster Assembly? Why was it convened? What did it accomplish? And then in the second half, we will spin out a little bit to talk about, well, how have these documents continued to serve the church? How have they been amended at times in various churches? And then why ought we, whatever tradition, Presbyterian, Baptist, Anglican, or otherwise, why is it important that we have confessions like the Westminster Confession? The Westminster Assembly began meeting in the summer of 1643, summoned by Parliament to reform the English church. The Assembly met for the first time on July 1, 1643, and continued meeting for 10 years, actually depending on which source you read, 1652 or 1653. It did the bulk of its work in those first five years, but continued to meet intermittently over the course of a decade. The assembly consisted of 119 men, sometimes called divines. It's not language that we still use today. Doesn't mean ontologically divine, of course, but they were theologians mostly scholars and pastors. Almost all of the divines were English, the majority Presbyterian, but there were also Episcopalians, so those who would have a church polity that has rule by bishops. The Presbyterians were church polity ruled by presbyters or elders. And then independents, probably many of you in this room, ruled by your local congregation, not by any regional body larger than that congregation. And then a fourth group that you may not be as familiar with, but is important to understand, the Erastians. You read this language in the history. Thomas Erastus was a Swiss physician and a Zwinglian theologian of an earlier generation. It's probably not the case that the views called Erastianism actually were taught by Thomas Erastus. That often happens in history. But something like Erastianism had its origins in this man. Erastianism is shorthand for the state has supremacy over the church. Now, Erastus's position was that the state had the right to punish all offenses, both civil and ecclesiastical. And so that view, which then becomes something more fully developed as state supremacy over the church from Richard Hooker on down comes to us as Erastianism. There were three members from the French Reformed Church who had pastorates in England. There were also several Scottish commissioners who, though not formal members of the assembly, proved to be very influential on the assembly's proceedings. Attendance at the assembly hovered over that decade around the 60s. So if you have a hard time getting people to your meetings, just look, only about half of the people were usually there. It, it was a 10-year-long meeting, so there's that. <laughs> but of the 119, there were roughly attendance in the 60s. The work of the assembly was arduous. 1,385 plenary sessions over the course of a decade. I'm a Presbyterian, so I can say this. We love committees. <laughs> we have in the PCA, uh, Ligon knows this, we have a committee, it's called the 
they, they overlook the Presbytery Records Committee. We have a committee to overlook the other committees and make sure that the committee is filing all their reports in the right way. We love the verse, do all things decently and in order. Almost 1,400 plenary sessions. Many men- ministers had to move to London for those years because the work was so demanding. And often they would be in London Monday through Friday. They'd ride on a horse somewhere out to the countryside and they'd do their sermon preparation on Saturday and they'd preach on Sunday and they'd be back. Most well-known, of course, are these things we call the Westminster Standards. Confession, the larger catechism, the shorter catechism. But that's not all that the assembly produced. And in fact, it produced those documents by 1647. Starts in 1643. From 1644 to 1647, they worked the better part of three years debating and writing the Confession of Faith, and then about six months after that, debating and writing the larger catechism and the shorter catechism. So by 1647, these major documents, which come to us today, had been written. But that's not all the assembly did. They produced other papers, documents, certificates. They examined men for ordination. They took minutes. Oh, they took lots of minutes. Formal statements of faith. The work of the Westminster Assembly was both a smashing success and a colossal failure. What do I mean by that? It was a success in that here we are in California, no one knew about, in 2022, with people packed into a room to hear about the Westminster Assembly. They never could have fathomed some 400 years later that people would still be caring about their work and that there would be Presbyterian churches all around the world who have the Westminster Standards as their confessions, and indeed that there would be free churches and Baptists who still, without having those confessions, show great respect to them, or maybe have the second London Baptist Confession, we'll say more about later, which is a derivative work from the Westminster Assembly. So it is a smashing success. It's just amazing to think these documents. We have a, a family that joined our church a few years ago, and uh, the, the wife and mother is from Cameroon. And you might just think, oh, Africa, but Sub-Saharan Africa is very Christian. In Cameroon, she just said, oh, I grew up Presbyterian, and my dad was Presbyterian, and they have more Presbyterians worshiping probably each Sunday in Cameroon than in the United States. Who could have fathomed that? So an unimaginable success and a colossal failure. A failure in that the reforming efforts in England did not stick. In fact, it's one of the most surprising things for Americans, especially American Presbyterians, to discover that Presbyterianism is practically non-existent in England today. It is not an exaggeration at all to say all of the... Now, I'm not talking about Scotland, but England. All the Presbyterians worshiping on a Sunday in England are not as many Presbyterians as worship in Christ's covenant on a Sunday. Our church is about 1,500 people. There are not that many. There are two small Presbyterian denominations that are in England and some up into Scotland and and Wales and some on the continent, but they would have maybe a couple dozen churches between them. Presbyterianism simply is almost non-existent today in England. There are many good, fine men doing work in many good churches, and it's just the size of a man's fist. But if you want to judge by its original aim to unite the kingdoms of Ireland, Scotland, and England, as we'll see, that did not last very long, and the documents themselves did not prove as influential in their own birthplace. Why was the assembly summoned in the first place? What was it trying to accomplish? Well, we need a little British history. The crowns of England and Scotland were united in 1603 under James I, who reigned 1603 to 1625. 
He had been James VI of Scotland. He was raised, being in Scotland, so Knox goes to Scotland. And for the second half of the 16th century, Scotland is at least in function and name Presbyterian. So James VI, raised in Scotland, was raised as a Presbyterian. He showed no particular interest in promoting Presbyterianism or siding with the Puritans. His only concession, which you all know of, is he allowed, okay, in 1611, you can make a new translation. Just, yeah, you know, put my name on it. So the King James Bible. For most of his reign, however indifferent he really was to the cause of the Puritans, He had as his Archbishop of Canterbury, George Abbott. And Abbott was a thoroughgoing Calvinist, and he kept King James's worst instincts at bay. Like I said, he was no friend to the Reformed cause, but he was at least better than his son, who would succeed him, Charles I, who was especially reviled, as we'll see shortly. Charles did not have his father's theological upbringing. So at least James I, formerly James VI, had been brought up in Scotland as Presbyterian. He did not have that upbringing, nor did he have his father's political skill. Early in his reign, Charles I made two fateful decisions. Number one, he married Princess Henrietta Maria of France, who was, drumroll, Catholic. And she insisted on practicing her Catholicism and having her own attendant priests. And this was seen as scandalous, outrageous. So that was his first fateful decision. Second, he appointed William Laud as archbishop in 1633. Up to 1630, the Church of England was dominated by Calvinists. Case in point is the very influential British delegation that went to the Synod of Dort. So that's in the Netherlands, the Synod of Dort, 1618, 1619, an international synod, mostly from the Netherlands, but there was a British delegation there, and that shows something about the strength of British Calvinism at the time. Actually, um, a member of my family did genealogy work on the de Youngs and traced us all the way back to the 1670s that my family comes from Dortrecht. So I'd like to think that we were there at the Synod of Dort. I just, I just am going to assume we were on the right side of everything. I've looked. I have the poster hanging in my wall of all the names. I don't see any de Youngs there. So Calvinism had been ascendant in England, but Laud changed all that. He sidelined the Calvinists. He appointed high churchmen. He threatened persecution. He did not like how connected the Calvinists were to other churches on the continent. He didn't like their view of the sacraments, and he really didn't like that their view did not have a hierarchy of priests, bishops, and archbishops. It's hard for us to understand. Most American evangelicals think little about church polity, though the good folks at Nine Marks, all of our Nine Marxist friends have done a good job of helping us to to think about church polity, but it was one of the central issues. Because think about it, how you run your church is how you run your country. One of the reasons many people have argued that Presbyterianism could find a ready foothold in Scotland is it did match up with the more clannish history and system that existed in Scotland where you have strength of local families and communities and clans overseeing certain regions. And so Presbyterianism can map onto that better, where you have a local church session and then you have a broader presbytery. So Laud was very nervous about any sort of rule by presbyters that didn't have a church hierarchy of priests and bishops and archbishops. And of course, you have to realize that at this time, Politics and international politics and religion are all tied up together. One of the reasons that even when you come to America and they're talking about freedom of religion and freedom of religious worship and expression, even people who have a, a great voice for freedom of religion sometimes would 
balk at allowing that for Catholics. In, fa- in fact, John Locke, his famous letter of toleration, he was more inclined to want there to be toleration for Jews than he was for Catholics. Now, that may sound really inconsistent, but he thought of it as an international affair because Catholicism was associated with France and with other dominant powers on the continent. So you could never fully separate Protestant and Catholic interests from the combustible nature of international politics, which is why it was not only a theological scandal, but a political scandal to have the king's wife practicing with her priests, her Catholicism. And William Laud had much more of those sensibilities. King Charles was increasingly unpopular with the people. He did not have patience for this doctrine, famously written by Samuel Rutherford, Lex Rex, that the law is king. And he strongly reasserted the divine right of kings. He greatly enraged the Scots. You don't want to make the Scots mad, do you? I was just doing an interview with uh, Sinclair Ferguson, and it will come out, Lord willing, on my podcast, I don't know, a few weeks or something. And I asked him at the end, I said, can I ask you a worldly question, Sinclair? Are you familiar with the American cartoon, The Simpsons? (laughs) And he was. And I said... um, do you know the character Groundskeeper Willie? I said, I've never heard of him. So as Ligon said, good thing our friend is using all of his mental space for nobler pursuits. But I said to Sinclair, I said, there's this one scene, forgive me for having watched The Simpsons, but (laughs) there's this one scene where Groundskeeper Willie, who is this super Scottish, he's looking outside and he sees Bart and Lisa fighting in the playground and he says, Ah, brothers and sisters are always fighting. It's the way it is with brothers and sisters, like Englishmen and Scots and Frenchmen and Scots and Japanese and Scots (laughs) and Scots and other Scots. (laughs) Then he says, darn Scotsmen, they ruined Scotland. So he greatly enraged, sorry for the very poor accent, he greatly enraged the Scots because the... The one theological position that was most anathema was episcopacy, to reassert the rule of bishops, which led famously to the signing of the National Covenant in 1638. If you ever go and visit Scotland, and there in Edinburgh, and you can walk up, you can go by the, uh, the, the little coffee and tea shop and they, where they have a little sign that says J.K. Rowling wrote the first volume of Harry Potter here, and then you can go elsewhere, you can go behind Greyfriars, and you can see there where they sign the National Covenant. It was the men of Scotland, the church leaders coming together to say that they were in opposition and they would not acquiesce to these demands from Charles and from William Laud, and they rejected the liturgical practices and episcopacy that King Charles wanted to foist upon them, which eventually led to open warfare against England by 1640. The setting for the Westminster Assembly was the Civil War in England. Charles had suspended the House of Commons from 1629 to 1640, Parliament was just a nuisance for him. He suspended Parliament. But now, by 1640, he's at war with Scotland. And what do you need in order to prosecute a war? You need money. How do you get money? You need to raise taxes. Parliament had the power of the purse. And so he had to reconvene Parliament in order to raise taxation, to fund his army, to fight the Scots. Well, Not only, once Parliament was reconvened, did they deny Charles his taxes to fund the army, they eventually passed legislation to dismantle episcopacy altogether. So technically, by the spring of 1643, there was no legal basis for the Church of England. All right, you called us together. Nope, no taxes for you. And by 1643, Nope, we're not going to have Episcopal church government in Scotland, and we don't have it in England either. Two matters then brought things to the boiling point. A rebellion in Ireland, 
which led to the death of hundreds of thousands of Protestants, which just stoked fears that there was an all-out papist assault might be coming. And then this famous activity on January 4, 1642. It's an old movie, and I'm sure it, it, you know, it takes all sorts of license as movies do, but if you go back and see those from the 1960s, the Cromwell movie that has Richard Harris as Cromwell, Richard Harris, who was the first Dumbledore, right? It all is just coming full circle here. <laughs> <coughs> now, uh, Oliver Cromwell is, there's a great debate uh, uh, of historical interpretation on was he just about the worst person in the history of English governance, or was he a great hero of the Puritans? But it's really a well-done movie and well-acted. And you know who's Charles I in that movie is Obi-Wan Kenobi. Alec Guinness is Charles I and Richard Harris. And um, Timothy Dalton is in it, who was one time one of the James Bonds. So it's got all of these people you might recognize. You can see this famous scene in there. Charles enters the commons, which is an unconstitutional act. So even though you have this supreme monarch, you, you, you have the whole tradition of English liberties and the importance of the parliament. And so the king was not to come unbidden unless the parliament would invite him. And he enters and he seeks to arrest five members of parliament who were especially critical of his tyranny, but they've been tipped off and they left. So the speaker of the house, William Linthal, when asked by the king, to reveal the whereabouts of these five men, gives this famous reply. So it's the king, your king is asking, where are these five men? May it please your majesty, I have neither eyes to see nor tongue to speak in this place, but as the house is pleased to direct me, whose servant I am. And it has come down to us considered one of the great statements of resisting authoritarianism and resisting tyranny because the speaker of the house in essence is saying, you may be my king, but I am not going to speak unless parliament gives me permission to do so. Asserting the right of the people, which is what the house of commons was meant to be over the right of the king. On August 22, 1642, Charles raises the royal standard at Nottingham, Nottingham, as we say, the Civil War had begun. He would be killed, Charles, in 1649, executed at Whitehall in London, and most of the Westminster Assembly, so 1649, the Assembly has been meeting since 1643, most of those Puritans in the Assembly were, were, were shocked, and did not envision nor countenance that this project underway would lead to regicide, to the execution of the king. Parliament summoned an assembly of divines in 1643 to give ecclesiastical and doctrinal advice. So this is in the setting of English Civil War. Here was their original mandate, the Westminster Assembly, was for, quote, the settling of the government and the liturgy of the Church of England and for vindicating and clearing of the doctrine of the said church from all false calumnies and aspersions. In short, their theological task was to show the Church of England was in agreement with the Church of Scotland and with the Reformed churches on the continent. There was a lot of cross-pollinization between Scotland, England, and the continent in particular with the Swiss Reformed and in particular with the Netherlands. It's not a long trip across the, the North Sea to get there. The theological task was to show unity among these reformed groups. Importantly, the Westminster Assembly was not a church court. This is one of the ironies of history. The Canons of Dort was an ecclesiastical synod. This was not an official ecclesiastical gathering. Technically, it was a body called by parliament that had no official church authority. It was appointed by parliament is served at the wishes of Parliament with the role of simply advising Parliament. So it's one of the ironies that even though the Westminster 
Confession doesn't go fully toward the Erastian view, though there are elements, there is an establishment principle, we'll see that in a moment, Uh, yet sort of their whole operating structure was with the state calling this church body into existence. The assembly initially began working to revise the 39 articles. You may know that's the doctrinal statement for the Anglican Church, it still is. And they said, okay, let's start with the 39 articles, and we'll revise those, which had their roots in the Irish articles. And they made some progress when Parliament gave new instructions. Okay, they said, no, we're not just going to revise the 39 articles. We want you to produce a new confession and new catechisms, and not just for the Church of England, but for the three kingdoms, English, Scottish, Irish. We want them to be in doctrinal and ecclesiastical conformity. On September 25. 1643, England and Scotland enter into a solemn league and covenant. Sounds like, I don't know, Marvel Cinematic Universe, or maybe that's DC Universe. A solemn league and covenant, whereby Scotland... See, Scotland wanted theological unity, and England wanted military unity. And the solemn league and covenant basically said, why not do both? And they gave their allegiance, one, that the English would join themselves with this reformed faith of the Scots and the Scots, that they would work together with the forces of Parliament in opposing the Royalists, the Cavaliers, and England, the Solemn League and Covenant. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechisms, together the Westminster Standards, are the most famous outpouring of the assembly's work. Now, what will be of interest to many of you who are not in Presbyterian churches, congregationalists trace some of their lineage to this same moment in time. So 1646-47, the Confession, the Catechisms. In October 1658, a group of independents, so those who don't have a Presbyterian system of government, congregational system of government, Independents and Congregationalists met at the Savoy Hospital in London to draw up a revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith, one that reflected their commitment to Congregational Church government. Six divines were tasked with drawing up this new confession. Chief among them are men you've heard of, Thomas Goodwin and John Owen. And the result was the little-known, today, Savoy Declaration, because it met at the Savoy Hospital there in London. It was a congregationalist revision of the Westminster Confession. Baptists often say, sounds like I'm in a support group. Some of my best friends are Baptists. (laughs) It's very true. The Savoy Declaration would be revised two decades later and become a classic Baptist summary of faith known as the London Baptist Confession or, confusingly, sometimes the second London Baptist Confession, to distinguish it from another lesser-known Baptist Confession written in 1644. The text of that confession was written in 1677, formally adopted in 1689. Someone in this room has got that tattoo somewhere. (laughs) You have a 1689 somewhere. That's the second London Baptist Confession, which was written as a revision of the Westminster Confession. So it's a very Reformed doctrine. It's Calvinist in soteriology. These were particular Baptists, meaning Reformed in their soteriology. And there are additions that even a good Presbyterian would be happy with. For example, in chapter 2 on the Trinity, the Second London Baptist Confession adds that each person of the Trinity has the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. Ah, that's a good line the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. So there were, there were small changes along the way, but as you know and would expect, the most significant differences have to do with the doctrine of the church and the sacraments. The Second London Baptist Confession is very similar, overlaps in many ways, and you can Google it and find a number of people. I think uh, as James Anderson from RTS Charlotte, I think maybe has done it one time, but you can find different people who, who put them side by side, and you can see exactly what the differences are. There is one striking change that was made to the Westminster Confession, which is worth mentioning. 
just want to talk a little bit about this change, and then we will draw this to a conclusion with some encouragement for why we ought to be confessional churches. Two sections, now it's not only two, but two chapters in particular. If you go and read the Westminster Confession of Faith, if you go, it's in the bookstore probably somewhere, or you get the hardbound copy like I have, or it's the, the back of that crossway Bible that has all of the creeds and confessions, you are almost certainly reading a, the American revision of the Westminster Confession. Chapter 20 on Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience, and chapter 23 of the civil magistrate. Changes were made in the American context relative to the role of the civil magistrate in things of religion. Let me just highlight what a couple of these changes were. Chapter 20 in the Confession, Christian liberty, liberty of conscience. The American revision just struck out one clause. The original says, uh, where should I pick it up? Uh, That the magistrate has powers to maintain Christ as established in the church. They may lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by censures of the church. So it's, it's talking about it inflicting discipline, may be called to account by the censures of the church and by the power of the civil magistrate. So in the original, the power of the civil magistrate has power to inflict some ecclesiastical discipline. That line and the power of the civil magistrate is removed in the American revision. More comprehensively, chapter 23 of the civil magistrate has, uh, you can't see it here, but okay, here's the paragraph in the original. They got rid of this whole thing, and they put this large new section in the American completely rewritten statement on the civil magistrates. So instead of saying, as it did in the original, for the better affecting whereof the civil magistrate hath power to call synods, to be present, to provide them whatever is transacted according to the mind of God. So the civil magistrate has power to call and convene and oversee church synods. Now it says, the civil magistrates may not assume to themselves administration of the word and sacraments. That's in the original also. But it says, yet as nursing fathers, that's a strange line, but that comes from the Psalms. <laughs> Blame the Psalms. As nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates. And basically, they give three duties of the civil magistrate relative to the church. One, protect the church without giving preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest. So protect the, the church has a free exercise of its faith and religion. Second, No law of any commonwealth should interfere with or hinder the due exercise thereof. So positively protect, negatively do not allow any law to hinder. And then finally, third, to protect the person and the good name of all their people. So the first protect is for the church itself, and then not to allow any hindrance. And then third, to protect each person, such that no person should be suffered either upon pretense of religion or infidelity to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person, and to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies to be held without molestation or disturbance. Chapter 31 is also changed in some parts of the larger catechism, though they didn't clean up everything in the larger catechism, so there's still a few points that remain outstanding. You may think that this happened in the American context in 1776, or maybe with the passage of the Constitution, or officially when the first General Assembly was held, the Presbyterian General Assembly, in 1689. And that's true. That's when a Presbyterian church, a national Presbyterian church, fully officially comes into existence in America in 17, I said 1789, and they adopt this version of the Westminster Confession with this revision. However, it's important to know that this dates back much longer. Already in 1729, there was something, I know we're getting into the weeds of Presbyterian history, but you asked for it, you showed up. (laughs) There is something called the Adopting Act of 1729. 
And already in 1729, the Presbyterian Church allowed that chapters 20 and 23, the ones I just highlighted, of the Westminster Confession were not binding on ministers, and that ministers need not receive, quote, these articles in any sense as to suppose the civil magistrate had the controlling power over synods with the respect to the exercise of ministerial authority. So whether good or bad, already in the American water, I don't know if they had the don't tread on me flags yet, but there was already no, you are not to receive articles 20 and 23 as supposing that the civil magistrate has authority over and in the church. It's hard for us, most of us, to to fathom, and yet for most of history, there has been the establishment principle. That is, that in order to have true peace and tranquility in your land or in your nation, you must have some established church. If you grew up in America, that's very alien, seems very strange. And yet, you can't understand the reasons for it. It is very hard for a people to have a cohesive sense of purpose and mission and identity without some shared religious faith. That was their thought. And yet, as it comes to America from not quite the very beginning, because Puritan New England was something different, but certainly by the 18th century, there is this understanding that there is not to be a national establishment of religion. The Constitution doesn't actually disallow states to have. It's a process over well into the 19th century where each state will go through its own process of disestablishment. But on a national level, and here with the Presbyterians already in 1729, they said, no, we are reading this differently in our political economy. A few other changes. 1887, there's a change made to the confession relative to how close of a deceased spouse you could marry. So just glad they cleaned that up. In 1903, substantive revisions were made to the confession by the Presbyterian Church in the USA with new sections on the good works of unbelievers, new chapter on the Holy Spirit and the love of God and missions, among many other substantive changes. And if you say, I don't recall ever reading those new chapters, it's because you're not in the PCUSA. Because in 1936 which is the beginning of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, they went back to the text before those 1903 revisions with two exceptions. They removed a line that took a very hard stance against swearing oaths, and you can decide if this was a good move or not, but they did it in the OPC, and they're pretty serious. They removed a reference to the Pope as the Antichrist. (laughs) That 1936 text is the one used in the OPC and the PCA. So let me just finish. And I know in our afternoon session, no one will mind wrapping up just a bit early, but to think, why is it, whether you're Baptist, Independent, Southern Baptist, Presbyterian, something else, what is the importance of being a confessional church? Because that is the central legacy that the Westminster divines have left for the church around the world are these standards, these documents. Whether you have documents that are to the ancient church, like the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Apostles' Creed, which I hope you will read and recite in your churches, or you have documents of more recent vintage, or you have the London Baptist Confession, or Westminster, or Heidelberg, or something else. Let me offer to you, there are critical reasons why we ought to be confessional churches. It is not, of course, because we think that any man-made confession is on par with the Scriptures. The Westminster Confession, as much as I love it, is not inspired. Every minister who gets ordained has an opportunity to express exceptions he takes to the Westminster standards. What don't you agree with. Famously, I forget the exact number, but, but John Murray 
Westminster professor, came up with something like 35 different exceptions, which just tell you he was reading this with a finer tooth comb than most of us are reading. So certainly not inspired, not beyond revision. We've seen several points where it has been revised. But give you three quick reasons. We ought to have confessions for unity, clarity, and humility. Unity. You can say to the world and to each other, this is what we agree on. Every confession is written at a moment in time, and they're addressing certain things, and you go back and you say, wow, I wouldn't have spent so many chapters on this issue. Obviously, that was a big deal. And you can go and say, why didn't you... Westminster Divines, why didn't you say anything about the trans issue? Well, (laughs) there was no such issue. So we will need to continue to express the faith once delivered for the saints and speak to it on issues that pertain to our day. So it's not once for all these confessions, but they do provide a sense of unity to say this is what we agree on. And not just unity, but clarity. This is, this is the, there's many, one of the problems with liberal churches. I'm thinking about, I don't use liberal church as a swear word. I, I use it, there is a definable tradition called liberalism. And one of the characteristics is they add more and more confessions, and by, by saying more, they actually say less because each one becomes less and less important and substantive. Or you say things in such a way that allows for maximal unity with minimal clarity. So these first two, unity and clarity, uh, need to be held in creative tension. You know probably the story of the Council of Nicaea, and you have the homoousia and homoousia, homoousia, meaning that the son is of the same substance, homo, you know that word, homoousia, of the same substance with the father. Homoi means similar. So is he of a similar substance? They, they fought, and they continued to fight, sometimes literally for a hundred years after that, over a diphthong is Edward Gibbon's famous line. In a, in a Yoda, homoousia, homoousia. And as always the case, there was a middle party that said, can't we just find a way for all of us to, to agree? Well, it takes a lot of discernment, doesn't it? There are some issues not worth fighting over. There are some men who have never met a hill that they don't want to charge. I will die on that mole hill. Kill me now. It takes wisdom to know which mountains, which hills are really worth dying over. But then there are, there are those who always want the lowest common denominator. You are always going to find on both sides of any issue, people who come with scripture, people who are very nice people. You don't think the Arians had nice people among the Arians? You don't think the Arians had Bible verses? They had all sorts of Bible verses. There was absolutely a way that they could have written the Nicene Creed and both sides would have fully agreed. Some people said, why don't we just use the language of Scripture? They all agreed that Scripture was authoritative, but yet they pressed in, the Orthodox party pressed in for their confession to be clear because they understood that though they could create a statement that they could agree on, they were not really in agreement. And it is an act of love for one another and honesty for us and for the world that we would be clear on matters of central importance. I see some evangelical churches and they, you go to their website and they got a statement of faith that I'm just sure none of you resemble this remark. It looks like an intern, and I got any interns in the room, I love you interns. You would do it, but it looks like a first-year intern just took about 25 minutes and wrote up a few things. I think, guys, we really can do better than that. People have been thinking about these things for a really long time. And I love that when people come to my church, can say, you want to know what we believe? (laughs) I can tell you a lot more than you want to (laughs) know. I got a big book of confessions. I hope you do that when you 
have a new members class, whatever you use. Maybe you have your own statement of faith or some other complimentary documents. And you need to gauge, are these people who just are coming to know Christ for the first time? It's not that your confession is most important, but I walk people through the Westminster Confession. I want you to understand. I want to be clear. We are not doctrinal minimalists. I want you to know what you can expect to be taught and believed at this church. And then finally, humility. To say no creed but the Bible, first, it is a type of creed. That is a statement, no creed but the Bible. But the impulse, I understand, is a good one insofar as you want to say nothing is on par with Scripture. That's true. And yet none of us can, nor is it desirable, to think that we can somehow flush our brains of 2,000 years of the Spirit's work in the church, and we can just come to this text de nova as if we're just, we've just invented everything for the first time. When people come with that expectation, they, they often make very common recurring sorts of mistakes to think that we can just turn it all back and we'll just be the, the early church again. Well, of course, we want to read this as they read it and always test everything against the Word of God. But I want to submit to you, it is an act of humility to say, you know what? We are not the first people to wrestle with these issues. What if we leaned on some who have gone before and have written statements, though not perfect, but have stood the test of time and have held Christians together for hundreds of years? Why would we not, as the cliche goes, see farther by standing on the shoulders of giants? Yes, we want to call people, first of all, to Christ. I made that clear in my message yesterday. But there's also a need to, to root them and strengthen them. I'm, I'm talking a little off script here, and then I'll be done, and maybe I shouldn't. Uh, it's not being recorded, I'm sure. But <laughs> I, the whole, the, the Young Restless Reformed Movement, New Calvinism, whatever you want to call it, uh, I've had a front row seat I, have a, I, I had my blog, De Young, Restless, and Reformed. And now I get a lot of people, well, now you're going to call it De Old? Yeah, I get it, I get it. I'm, I'm not De Young anymore. I'm not one who thinks that all of that was, I think there was much, much good in that m- movement, and I hope much of it continues. Here, however, was a concern that I had over those intervening years is it was a concern to see some people drawn to great rich doctrine because it was novel. Because they came out of a context where they didn't get it. Now, this, this was the cool thing for a time. Okay, the Lord can use that. The Lord can use the cool thing for a time. Why do some of your sons go to youth group? Because there are girls there. It's just the truth. <laughs> And vice versa. So the Lord uses a lot of different mixed motives to get us where he wants to go. But if we don't anchor this in history and to say, whether you are a part of an official denomination or an official confessional tradition or not, this is why I'm so happy that that Joel is doing this whole thing and, and Grace is hosting this. We need to have heroes And we need to have heroes that are dead heroes. Are they perfect heroes? Of course not. Do we need to be honest about their flaws? Of course we do. But have you ever noticed Hebrews 11, all of the the hall of fame of faith there? Hebrews doesn't major on all of the ways they failed. You can get that. That's true. But there was a time there to say, here's what I, I, want you to re- I want you to learn from these men and women who have gone before and, have, and give you something to aspire to. So Rahab, well, but Rahab was a prostitute. Well, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not telling you to be a prostitute. <laughs> I'm telling you to have faith like Abraham. Well, but Jacob had two wives. I know I'm not telling you to do that. 
But can you learn a lesson from these people who have gone before? We live in an age of anti-heroes. And the thing is, it's in the human spirit. We will all have heroes. Even the person who has the sort of late night talk show host, cynics pose, nothing. I just, I just, I make fun of everyone, everything. I never get to engage. I'm the scoffer. They become a heroes for a new age. Everyone will have some set of heroes. When you lose one, you're just going to gain another. So we need the humility to say we have much to learn from these Puritans. They have things that we can rightly criticize them for. How could we not? They're human beings. Just like they would come to our time and rightly criticize us. We might go back to some of these earlier ages and say, wow, you, you had some prejudices that didn't get dealt with. And yep, that's true. And they would come here and say, have you gone to your beaches? <laughs> I can't believe what people are not wearing at your beaches. <laughs> I can't believe what you pay money for to be entertained by and call it just good, clean, PG-13, whatever, Christian fun. So every age has something to say to another age. And with humility, we can learn from those who have gone before. And the Westminster Assembly is just one of those gatherings by the Lord's providence and his kindness that has left to us this great doctrinal statement and so many great men there who have bequeathed to us this inheritance of doctrinal clarity and faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these Brothers and sisters, these men and women coming from nearby and far away all around the world and pray for these days together that you would strengthen us in our faith to live for you, if called, to die for you, certainly to die to ourselves every day. And we pray that we may learn from those who have gone before. In Christ's name, the only hero who never failed. Amen.